is up, fun seekers. Welcome back to Rupert Radio. I'm your host, Blake Rupert. And in this show, we discuss methodologies, philosophies, and practical techniques for increasing our awareness and promoting degrees of freedom. For this week's episode, it is a recording of a presentation I gave live to the Psychedelic Society. They are a meetup group based in Vancouver, Canada, that deals with psychedelic medicine, especially as it relates to healthcare. In my presentation, I talk about why, in my mind, Buddhism is an incredible methodology to be paired with psychedelic technologies in order to alleviate suffering, discover our true freedom, and surf uncertainty. At the end of the presentation, there's some really great question and answers, so be sure to stick around for that. I should also mention that if you're interested in seeing behind the scenes and how the, I guess, vegetarian sausage was made, then check out episode 7. Without further ado, let's dive in. Perfect. So yeah, so welcome to the Psychedelic Society. Um, So today we're going to have Blake Rupert, who's going to be giving a a talk on psychedelic Buddhism. And um, before we do that, though, I wanted to just spend a second, um, just kind of, especially looking around here in the beautiful land that we live in, and just the beautiful mountains in the background, and wanted to take just a moment just to acknowledge the unceded territory of the Indigenous peoples, and, you know, just honor and commemorate um, their kinship to the land. And certainly like anything that we can do moving forward with regards to psychedelics in terms of healing traumas and building bridges and raising awareness is something that I definitely want to be part of. Um, Certainly I've noticed uh, a change in conversation surrounding psychedelics, especially certainly in this last year. For those of you who know, I'm a nurse. I work in the ER at St. Paul's and I've witnessed something fairly remarkable, especially over this last, uh, last year, which is, the opening up of the space to talk safely about psychedelics and things relating to psychedelics. In this last couple of months, even I've witnessed um, points where the medical professionals, the nurses, even the doctors and such, when we're in the break room, having conversations about psychedelics, people sharing their journeys and some of them, their challenges, others asking questions and a lot of them coming up with questions and you know, some of them saying, hey, I've heard my cousin talking about this, or, you know, I've read an article about this, so that's really cool. Like, this is something that's coming into the purview, you know, and I think that's something really amazing just to see this kind of sea change and, you know, this cultural shift or this uh, acceptance of psychedelics um, and all the benefits that it offers. And, you know, and that's part of what we're all here for. Uh, that's what the Psychedelic Society is about. You know, it's about it's about having the speakers in these conversations. It's about asking the questions, learning, sharing, connecting, and just being part of a community. So that's something I'm really happy to be part of with you guys. And I'm happy to, to be on this journey with you. Um, and, you know, with that, I welcome you to our 23rd uh, meetup for our uh, Psychedelic Society. So without further ado, then we're going to um, introduce Blake. So Blake is going to be sharing his insights at the intersection of psychedelics and Buddhism. Uh, he will explore how we might integrate practices, enhance our epistemic and ontological foundations, and deeply ground ourselves in the unyielding present. Blake will consider how this knowledge can allow us to alleviate suffering, discover our true freedom, and serve the ever-emergent uncertainty in our lives. Blake is an accomplished mentor who combines a Buddhist practice with psychedelic insights and nature-based wisdom. He has a BA from Dalhousie, where he double majored in psychology and philosophy studying topics like consciousness and the feasibility of producing thinking machines. Um, so I'm really excited to have Blake come on over here. We've had some really interesting conversations with him. He's got an amazing mind. 
He's got a really good ability to articulate his ideas and he's just got some really amazing insights. So I'm very much looking forward to this. And again, I really welcome you and thank you for coming over here and joining us, uh, Blake. I'll hand it off to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Christoph. And yeah, thank you also, Kenny and everyone who invited me to speak here. Uh, thank you all to you who have tuned in also to listen. I really appreciate your time. I also just want to take a moment to give thanks to my meditation and Buddhism teacher. His name's Gil Fronsdale. He's at the Insight Meditation Studio in uh, Redwood, California. Today, I want to give a brief introduction to why I think psychedelics and Buddhism together are an incredible tool for cultivating a sustainable and directable mode of connection with peak experiences, as well as like Christoph said, being in the unyielding present and surfing uncertainty. Specifically, there's some key notions that I find uh, that have been ported over or like translated to Western versions of Buddhism that um, maybe are missing from what we should uh, really appreciate as we think about how to live our life in a Buddhist philosophy or method methodology. And so I'll be going through some of the just basic principles of the kind of Buddhism that I subscribe to and I practice. And a note on that, I think anytime anyone makes a claim that they're, they're going to tell you what Buddhism is or maybe any sort of philosophy, it should come with the caveat that it is that person's version of Buddhism. I make no claims that my Buddhism is the Buddhism or it's the right Buddhism. Um, I've heard some people say, oh, but mine's the oldest or I've subscribed to this because it's the most true. And I have no idea of, about that. All I can share is what I found to be valuable in my own life, in my own practice, and with the people I work with. And specifically, it's a lineage uh, called Theravada Buddhism. I believe it's also called Thai Forest Buddhism. Uh, so yeah, if you want to double click on that, you can find more information under those names. Some of the main points I want to cover are around the idea of mindfulness and how Mindfulness is a wonderful tool that I think Western culture has really seized upon as being useful for not only decreasing stress, but also promoting or uh, flourishing and healthy life in everyday practice. And in my, when I engage with psychedelics, I'm amazed by how well the practice of mindfulness translates and helps keep me or others who use it safe, as well as helping them get the most benefit out of such a transformational tool. But I think there's limits to mindfulness, or better said, it's not enough simply to be mindful. I'm not sure where this got lost in translation, but I was taught that before mindfulness, there's other steps of understanding meditation and by association, Buddhism. So the first teaching of Buddhism, basically the only teaching of Buddhism, the only claim, the only conjecture is Desire is a source of all suffering. It's a, it's a bit of a tricky one. And I think we could go on for quite a while debating best or success, but I would encourage this, this conversation to the root of all suffering. After that, the Buddha and others suggest or ask us to consider that if you want to investigate this uh, desire and how it creates suffering, we can do two things. The second of which is mindfulness. The first, I don't hear many people speaking about, and that is 
bare attention. Another name for it might be simple attention. You'll notice here that bare attention actually comes before mindfulness. So it's a, there's a step relationship, a linear pathway there. And I think we hear a lot of emphasis on this mindfulness part, but bare attention needs to happen in order for us to really sit with and experience what's uh, going on for us. So bare attention, what is it? It's basically the ability to detect the smallest protuberance or signal on your being. I once heard it described as being a pond and bare attention being the ability to note a leaf landing on the surface of the pond and being, ah, okay, there's a leaf over there. Or feeling that a breeze is shifting the lily pads as they move across the top of the pond. That is bare attention. Mindfulness is what happens afterwards, is the ability to sit with and investigate, to direct the spotlight of attention onto the sensation once it has been noticed and be like, what is the texture of that sensation? What is the quality? So it, the first is like a radar. Bear attention is noticing that something is occurring. And once it's been noticed, we can employ mindfulness and sit with and examine the sensations such as they are. What's really interesting or what blew me away when I was first learning about it is that everything I've said so far, that's basically it for Buddhism. That's all it is. Desire is a source of all suffering. And if you wish to investigate or understand desires, you can use meditation, which is the combination of bare attention and mindfulness. This practice, this commitment, this methodology is just transformational. I, I can't underscore how profound an experience it is for myself to come to this regularly and be committed to engaging with my sensations, however they are, and to try and notice one that they're occurring and two, allow myself into the often overwhelming or scary notions of what I'm feeling. Just really look around and be like, ah, oh, what's going on here? And so that leads me to another key point that if you are somebody who wants to increase your awareness, develop additional degrees of freedom to reduce suffering and to hopefully have a way that you can navigate growth and development, I think once you understand meditation and the key claim of Buddhism, there's some other things, some other wisdom teachings. These are not prescriptive lessons from an authority. They're not the dictates of a God. These are just things that people have tested and shared and come up with. And I find them incredibly helpful as I engage with life and especially with psychedelic domains. And the second one is that there are two extreme paths. This is the Buddha's teaching that we have two extreme ends of a spectrum that we often find ourselves on when we are exposed to different stimuli. On one end, we have the fight or the flee or the hide. So if we feel angry, we might not want to feel it and be like, oh, it's too, it's too overwhelming. I, I just shouldn't be angry right now. Or if we're sad, we might want to suppress it and squash it and ignore it. And that is one end of what the Buddha suggested is a common mode or um, pattern of behavior of reacting to different stimuli. 
On the other end of the spectrum, we have this complacency, this surrender, the sense that whatever stimuli or sensations that come up earlier, we talked about the leaf landing on the, um, on the pond or the wind blowing the surface. If we're on the second mode of reaction, we might feel that wind blow and be like, oh, I can't do anything to control that. And then just fully devote our attention to it such that the sensation feels like it's the only thing that exists. Perhaps an easier way of understanding this is, uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with a craving to eat junk food or ice cream or something like that. And there can be a sense often of pleasure welling up and it's so big that we lose ourselves in the presence of the stimuli. As a thinking or relating being, we are we give up our ability to relate and just let the feeling surround us. And so on one end, we're avoiding sensations, we're fighting them. On the other, we're giving ourselves up to them and wrapping them around us. There is a third path, a path of balance. And it's one that Buddhist practitioners often speak to as being a skillful path. And it's a path of simply noticing that a sensation is arising and allowing oneself to participate with it without the need to surrender to it or to fight it, simply to observe, ah, this is true, with curiosity, and compassion, and openness. It's all the things that I think so many skillful practitioners of psychedelic um, experiences really try and promote this idea of not resisting when there are difficult or challenging or intense stimuli. As a philosophy, Buddhism espouses the idea that we can do this at all times with all sensations, and that by doing so, we increasingly develop an ability to be honest about what is occurring, as well as deepening our practice or our degrees of freedom to respond in the ways that we wish or that we choose to. The last mode of, or the last teaching of Buddhism that I really wanna add here that I think drives it home is a notion of, hmm, a notion of sensations or stimuli and kind of really defining or drilling down on what that means. I think so often um, when I talk to people, I get the impression that they think that meditation or mindfulness is simply going and sitting and being still in order to feel calm. And there's this priority placed on peace or on stillness and on um, feeling good and relaxed. And something that really astonished me when I first was exposed to it was the notion that for Buddhism, for, for Buddhists, there are no such thing as good or objectively bad sensations or stimuli. So I wanna notice here that sensations and stimuli refer to anything that we might experience in our being, our mind, or our heart, or our body. And I think so often we can find different sensations come up that we have an immediate reaction to, one of fear or aversion or resistance, all these different things that fell on those two spectrums of 
fighting or fleeing and, or also like giving yourself up or like trying to get as much as it is possible. And what Buddhists ask us to consider and to use meditation to investigate is whether or not any of those sensations actually have meaning or if they're just in fact neutral. And what many Buddhists over time have recorded and documented in their own process of introspection and self-discovery is the realization that ah, these signals, these stimuli that we experience when we pay close attention, when we use bare attention and mindfulness, they're devoid of any negativity or positivity. Positivity. They simply are sensations. So we might in fact have relationships with them. Say if you touch a hot stove, you may very quickly realize you don't want to be touching that hot stove. But the sensation, the pain response in itself is just a signal. The way I think about this is being in a cockpit of a ship or a like spaceship or something cool like that. And I think about in front of me, a whole buttload of buttons that represent different components of the ship. And this ship, by the way, is my being, my brain, body, and heart. And as I'm in the cockpit, different signals come up throughout my day as I move through the world that signal to me different emotional cues, different stimuli about the world. And now reflexively, I might have the inclination to see, say, a red uh, gas can or a battery, probably is more appropriate, icon start flashing urgently and have learned or patterned my belief of this stimuli to be like, uh-oh, my spaceship's battery is about to die. That's bad. <laughs> and so often, I think, as we move through the world, we have emotional or physiological somatic express, uh, experiences of different stimuli, and we're so quick to label them good or bad. And I would just invite any who have the interest to really practice this noticing when that occurs and once you've noticed it once that radar blip you've tuned in on it allow yourself to meet it without resistance or without the need to change it or fix it or swerve off of it quickly and see is the signal in itself good or bad in my own practice as i do this throughout sober life throughout life with psychedelic use what I find increasingly is an ability to relax into the truth of the moment and find that anything that arises really is just data that's trying to help me have a better representation of what's going on. And there are some data points that I find uncomfortable or that I wish weren't true, but in and of themselves, it's just information. <laughs> and the source of any tension or of any joy or ecstasy comes from my relationship to that information occurring. And as I do that, I can increasingly direct my attention on how to change my relationship because that's what I have the ability to influence and act upon as opposed to trying somehow to just outsource responsibility for these events and say, well, they're bad, so I should feel bad. So one of the reasons that Buddhism for me is such a powerful methodology or philosophy for moving forward in life is that 
when we combine it with something like psychedelics, I think psychedelics are this incredible accelerant that leads to um, something that has been called before peak experiences. I'm sure we're all familiar with, hopefully, with peak experiences. There are those days where the sun is maybe shining bright and we're filled with vigor and a sense of purpose and clarity. And we feel like life has real meaning and that we're being authentically ourselves and contributing in ways that um, are really worth our time. And I know for myself that those days were far and few between. I didn't have a way of reliably accessing them before my first use of psychedelics. And then like many wild youth before me, I went to a music festival and I had a friend that I loved and trusted encourage me to take psilocybin. And what followed was an afternoon, a whole day where it seemed like the saturation of the world was cranked up to a thousand. And it felt like layers of callus that had built up around my heart were able to fall off. And throughout the day, I experienced more self-discovery and aliveness in one afternoon than I think I had felt in many years prior. I was astonished afterwards by how interacting with the spirit of psilocybin or with fungi and how that had been such a reliable tool for accessing this and how, wow, I didn't know that was even out there. But also I very quickly appreciated the fact that I wasn't going to be eating mushrooms every day. That just wasn't going to fly for the way I wanted to live my life. Part of it was out of respect for the fact that the journey with the mushrooms was somewhat unpredictable. There was some really rocky parts where when I was surfing, it really felt like I could fall off. And if I fell off, I was going to get seriously hurt. And I'm reminded of the philosopher and neuroscientist, Sam Harris, uh, what he says um, in his amazing essay, uh, How Drugs Can Change the World. He talks about how psychedelic use is amazing for helping people reach these peak experiences. But it's also kind of like strapping somebody to a rocket ship. You send them blasting off really at a rate they cannot control or directly influence if they're strapped on the outside of it. And there's some real risks. I think that psychedelics are probably a bit more like a jetpack, and that for a lot of us, um, with training and practice and familiarity, we can learn to use them. I don't know how many people can fly jetpacks reliably, but conceivably I can imagine them being pretty adroit in them. And at the same time, jetpacks aren't for everybody. And so as powerful and as wonderful as psychedelics are, I have a really deep appreciation for the fact that they are to use, be used sparingly and with great intention and safety protocols. And that's where Buddhism comes in, this, especially this uh, set of teachings that combines bare attention, mindfulness, the idea of a third path, and the consideration that stimuli in and of themselves are neutral, not necessarily things we should reach for or try and avoid. I think that if you can internalize that and make the decision to practice and explore those teachings, it serves to be a reliable way of reaching the same heights that a jetpack gets you to. For myself, I love hiking, 
And if I was given the chance to use a jetpack to get to the top of a mountain, I would shamelessly do it in a heartbeat. And at the same time, I still know that I'm going to go outside and hike as much as I can. And I think that Buddhism really is something that can keep you safer as we use psychedelics, as well as being the hiking equivalent to a jetpack. You can, through practice and exercise, really walk in a way that is sustainable and nourishing to the top of the mountain and reach many of the same experiences that are otherwise accessible with exogenous sub substances. Just to close, I'll maybe share a short story of how this has manifested in my life. In 2019, I was minding my own business when I got a phone call that was from out of the country. And I was annoyed because I hadn't got a scam call in a while from long distance. So I didn't answer. And it called again. And at w that point, I started to realize that, oh, maybe this wasn't a scam call. And so I picked up. And what followed was, I think, an experience that none of us would wish to have, in which a voice on the other end that I didn't recognize said my name and said, hey, I'm sorry to bother you, but I need to let you know I'm in the hospital with one of your family members. And the doctor saying they don't know if they're going to make it through the night. Over the next three days, I booked a flight to the country they are in and I got on the plane and I knew that on that plane, there was going to be no Wi-Fi or any way to connect with the outside world. And I really had no idea about whether or not that family member was going to be alive when I got off the plane. And one of the things that struck me during that process was going up to my seat and finding that my aisle on the plane was empty with, except for me, which pre COVID was a minor miracle. And I noticed that immediately I had a strong reaction, a stimuli seemed to emerge within my being that was one of joy and relief and gratitude. And as I started to practice mindfulness of that sensation, my bare attention picked up another sensation, which was of anger and resentment. And somehow I noticed part of me was angry that I was feeling joy and gratitude. <laughs> there was a part of me that was basically screaming, saying, now is not the time. This is an emergency. How dare you feel grateful? How dare you feel joy? They might die. And I watched as there was these different parts of me that seemingly had mutually exclusive ideas of what was appropriate or true in that moment. And I just noticed, I, I did my best to follow that middle path and not to get swept away or fight or resist and simply to observe. And what I noticed was that, ah, wow, here I am, I think objectively under an incredible amount of stress. And I'm so quick to want to punish myself, to take away joy. I'm so quick or eager to constrict and to feel more pain than I have to. Isn't that interesting? 
And in doing so, I was allowed to, I think, open up some space and relax into the truth at that moment, which was that I was really feeling gratefulness. And for that flight, that really was something that helped keep me warm. I think as we move through the world, not only for avoiding suffering, but also for engaging in a way that is sustainable and conscious with our highest experiences, this methodology of Buddhism is invaluable and priceless. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you so much, Blake. We've got a question coming in right away here. Barbara uh, saying uh, she has a question that can't raise her hand. So let's go ahead and... Uh, Go ahead. Good. Yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Thank you, Blake. I thought that was really, um, really powerful. So thank you so much. Um, You and I share a root teacher. So that's kind of interesting as well. I've studied with Gil and been down at the center and on retreat with him. So it's been really awesome. Um, Just one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, um, I think, you know, as we Um, as many of us have, um, you know, talked about some of the psychedelic experiences we've had, we've talked about the messages that we've gotten from the medicine and different things. And I'm just wondering, um, from that perspective, um, if you see an intersection between maybe some of the other aspects of Buddhism, like the ethic component, ethics components of Buddhism, with, um, with, you know, what we learn in our trips. I think what I'm getting at is mindfulness is absolutely a critical piece of the path, but I'm wondering about things like right view, right thought, right speech, all of those things that are the things that we need to start to look at in order to ease suffering. So I'm wondering if you see an intersection between um, psychedelics and um, the, the rest of the Eightfold Path. Yeah, for sure. I just want to say you're the first person I've met uh, in BC who knows uh, about Gil. Yeah. So it's yeah. wonderful to yeah. make that connection. Um, connect up. Yeah. Cool. I, one of the things that I really like to emphasize for a lot of people, especially those who come from a more Western tradition, or I, I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, attending a Christian church and many of my friends were steeped in different modes of um, colonial religions. And one of the things that really blew my mind was learning uh, that Buddhism, at least the Buddhism that I've been exposed to, is not a series of uh, Ten Commandments. It's not a series of seemingly prescriptive states of or statements of what should or shouldn't be. And that as a as a practice, as a methodology, it really is about self self inquiry and like scientific method of exploring what's going on internally. And so when I think about things like the um, Eightfold Eightfold Path and all the different wisdom teachings of the culture of Buddhism, all the different suggestions of how we can be right in the world and help others and respect ourselves, I think of those as really, really valuable writings and teachings from philosophers or from teachers or from loved ones. And I have so much faith and respect for the fact that people over thousands of years have 
managed to discover these, write these down, show them to their friends and be like, what do you think about this? And I really love the way they do it. But at the same time, I find I want to emphasize for people that those are not, yeah, again, religious precepts. And so I try and steer people towards what the basis of Buddhism for me really is, which is, again, the notion that desire is the source of all suffering. And if you want a means or a tool by which to explore that and change perhaps your relationship with it, it's bare attention and then mindfulness. And everything else that follows from that is just wonderful teachings that come from different people and you can engage with and learn from. Thank you. One thing I would say is that um, in this all, I think that not only psychedelics, but also with Buddhism really cannot move forward in a good way and develop like sound concepts or frameworks of ethical behavior or right relationship with the world without acknowledging and honoring the connection we have to the earth. And so that's not a part of this talk, but I would hope that anyone who uses these methodologies increasingly listens to those who are mentors and hoping to come up with good ways of being, as well as like really investigating their connection to this planet and the natural cycles. Yeah, super important. Thank you so much. All right, next up we have Sid. I uh, think you're ready to go and unmute it. Yep, yep, can you hear me okay? Yeah, sound great, go ahead. Awesome. Uh, Blake, thank you so much. It was a really wonderful talk and, and a touching story, so thank you. Uh, and I'm also a Dalhousie alma mater, so I, I uh, uh, we share that. Um, I want to talk, I want to ask you, Blake, about kind of the experiences that people describe further along the Buddhist meditative path um, and how that might be analogous to some you know, so-called peak experiences in the psychedelic state. Um, it's really interesting when you consider the neuroscience literature on psychedelics and a lot of work on the default mode network in both the psychedelic state and the meditative state. And there's there's kind of a lot of talk of some convergence. Uh, and um, and so how, how much do they converge, would you say, uh, experiences and insights on the cushion versus uh, a high dose of psilocybin. How how much can we draw comparisons between those experiences and those insights? And yeah, how, how close are the Venn diagram? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that fascinates me. Um, I've been really enjoying recently uh, brushing up on my neuroscience. Um, I don't know what you took at Dow, but I took technically psychology, but at Dal, all the psychology courses are cross-listed with neuroscience. So that's basically what I ended up studying. Um, and I've been brushing up with my understanding of how the brain works by listening to the Andrew Huberman lab podcast. Highly recommend it for anyone who has an appetite for technical understanding of brain mechanisms. And something I just heard yesterday that really like had a cascading click of like aha moments for me was the like neurological mechanisms by which our directed attention and then intentional like like attention to changes, how that ch influences and promotes plasticity in our brain. And so if you don't, if you're a kid, this doesn't apply, but for adults, um, in order for your brain to exhibit plastic plasticity and to change, you need to be focused and aware of what you're trying to change and then have excitement and like real like energy for it. 
And I think about how with the uh, jetpack analogy, and when you're consuming these powerful exogenous substances that really promote activity and like, whoa, like what's going on here? Um, they're really helping super boost that process of uh, neuroplasticity and really helping us like examine which patterns we cling to that maybe don't serve. Whereas with meditation, I think it's like essentially the exact same process, except it's much more deliberate and small. Instead of flooding your brain with uh, acetylcholine and dopamine and like having it all be super hyper malleable for a brief period of time in which you can really be like, oh, wow, what is going on and change it all rapidly. I think meditation moves forward in a way that's incremental and a lot more stable and hopefully a lot more directable. But the underlying mechanisms I would posit are like identical. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Next up, we have uh, Andrew, you are up. And there's no one, uh, no one, sorry, Andrew D is up. Uh, no one's after that. So if anyone has any questions, again, reminder, uh, pop a note in the chat or raise your hand. Thanks. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, thanks, Kenny. Um, thank you, Blake, for sharing uh, that beautiful story, um, a vulnerable story about flying home. Um, thank you also for um, sharing about your Theravada Buddhist background. I practice in the Theravada as well. Uh, I took to psilocybin, I think about a year ago. And one of the things that I, um, I'm hoping you could expand a little on is the fifth precept uh, and how it relates to responsible use of psilocybin and other medicines. Mm. Uh, you made the comparison with uh, flying a jet, a jet pack. Um, and I mean, fifth precept for those who are not Buddhist basically says that you should abstain from things that cause heedlessness, because that's not um, conducive to developing insight and mindfulness. Um, and there's a lot of discussion in Buddhist circles about whether or not psychedelics should be used. Obviously, the discussions we're having here is about are about using the medicine to increase insight, increase mindfulness. At least that's how I try to use it. But at the same time, I am also rooted in, as you you put it beautifully, uh, a colonial religion. Uh, I was raised Orthodox Presbyterian, um, where Buddhism talks about training precepts. Orthodox Protestantism, mm -hmm. to, uh, Protestantism talks about commandments. So there is this yeah. tension in my head. How do I balance these things out? I understand the truth can be fluid and you need to find a balance. And I found that using psilocybin can increase mindfulness, but I'm sort of hesitant. I find myself hesitant to taking maybe larger doses because I can see how they could create more insight, but I could also crash into a wall rather than lift off and get the wider view. Uh, and I was wondering how you, if you could perhaps expand a little bit on training practices you use to stay more grounded. Do you, you use more, more uh, concentration practices uh, in your meditation um, and rather than insight before you go on a trip? Uh, like I, I heavily practice uh, noting practice um, and, and insight meditation, but maybe the way to stay more grounded in a psychedelic experience might be to do more concentration practices, et cetera. I'm not even talking just morally, uh, mm -hmm. but how to practically use this while staying truthful to the 
to the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist goal of reducing clinging. Yeah. Yeah, what a wonderful question. Thanks. Um, if anyone's interested, uh, Christoph mentioned, I do have a podcast. It's called Rupert Radio, just my last name. Um, and actually in preparation for this talk, uh, my dear friend Andrash, uh, that some of you may know, he was kind enough to help me brainstorm and kind of tease apart what I was going to say here. And he ended up asking me, I think, a very similar version of your question here. And it was basically, how do we reconcile, um, and this is kind of what I'm hearing from you, the general wisdom and teachings of the Buddhist tradition that suggest we be wary of or eliminate or reduce our participation with substances that may uh, directly affect our consciousness. And yeah, I think I heard part of your, so oh, I'll just go back to the podcast. Uh, so we talked about this as well, and there might be some difference if you want to check it out more. I heard part of your answer um, already in this, in which I think for a lot of people who come into wanting to discuss Buddhism or like relate to it, there's this idea of like speaking to an authority and getting answers and you got to do those answers just so, or else it doesn't work and you're going to be burned for eternity. Uh, whereas Buddhism really is a commitment to open source, self-reflection, investigation, experimentation. I, to be totally frank, there was a time in my life where I poo-pooed meditation, Buddhism. I thought it was super woo-woo, esoteric, pseudoscience stuff. And I think that's a reflection of my inability and willingness to like really even consider it for a moment and pause and reflect on what's being suggested here. And so with any teaching of Buddhism, with any sort of notion of what is true or what might be or what we can do to live more skillfully, I really like to consider it as suggestions. They're, they've perhaps carried down through a lineage and they've been tested, which depending on your point of view might give them more credence. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they're not hard and fast rules or instructions that are things you're you can do right or wrong. They're like signposts that people have put along a beautiful journey. And they're saying like, hey, like a lot of people have found that if you reduce your consuming of exogenous substance, things like psilocybin or alcohol or caffeine, it might create a more stable background or space in which to assess and investigate the situations that arise. And I think that's totally true. I think we want to be wary of modulating our physiology so haphazardly that at any time, like we're more excitable or less excitable or all these different things. And at the same time, I personally believe that the teachings of Buddhism don't suggest that we shouldn't ever do these things or that it's in some way immoral or wrong. I think actually there's a lot of reason to believe that intentional, compassionate curiosity with the experience, as long as it doesn't hurt others, that that can be a really skillful thing and a really worthwhile experiment to run. And so again, I would just say that to, to close this is that we should be wary of any sort of prescription for or recommendation for psychedelic use that suggests that repeated or continued use of it is going to produce a meaningful life or what a life of whatever good things you want. I would really suggest that psychedelics have their most potentiality and their most value when we use them 
to become aware of what is possible so that when we return to our sober and our waking life, we can work with diligence and real like purpose towards like, wow, I know it's possible. I really want to get there under my own power and not with the assist of this external force. Thank, thank you so much uh, for that. And uh, really resonates with me. It reminds me of the first time I, I took MDMA when I was, uh, and it basically showed me the view from the mountain. And mm. I had the exact same realization. Like now I know that I can experience that state and now I want to work to get there. Like I put it in, in, in almost the exact same words at the time. So mm. thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, just two quick Thanks, things. Oh, what One would be that... Um, I'll just start with, you had a specific question about um, what protocols to get there. Specifically, I use attention on my breath and this is so deceptively simple, but the trick I think to this whole thing is really just desire as a source of all suffering, bear attention followed by mindfulness and having an openness and a curiosity and a compassion to whatever is true in that moment while avoiding the common pitfalls of the two extremes of the path and reminding ourselves continuously that there is no such thing as a good sensation. Like it's just as important to like practice these things with sensations that are exciting as it is with those that we are terrified of. And so in psychedelic, whether it's for myself or I'm helping someone else, I really advise them to um, be with their breath and as well as to say that things are probably going to surf up and they're going to surf down and it's all par for the course. It's all okay. Thank you. And you also use, I don't want to hijack the floor here and there's three more questions, but you also use Samatha meditation uh, alongside Vipassana meditation to prepare for use of psilocybin. Um, I'm actually not familiar with that term, but perhaps it'd be better if we talked afterwards. That sounds good. Cool. Thank you. Oh, all right. So we have Ian up next. And just so people know kind of the order, uh, Misha, you are going to be after and Emily uh, after that. So I'll just be ready for that so you can uh, be on there. Ian, go right ahead. Hi, Blake. <clears throat> um, I think you may have just kind of answered my question. Uh, <laughs> Over the last year and a half, I've developed this practice with moderate doses of mushrooms where I over and over again pay attention to whatever sensations are coming up in my body. And um, then I breathe into that space and I don't know how else to describe it. If I feel something in my shoulder, then I will put my attention on that area and follow it and then breathe into it. Now, when I describe this practice at meetings and integration circles and that kind of thing, nobody's really responded to that, even people who are much more experienced than me. So I kind of wonder, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> but the way you've talked about it, it sounds very similar yeah. to, to what I'm doing. Um, so, so I'm just curious, as a Buddhist practitioner, are there other ways that I other ways of me modifying that practice or am I on the right track or something like that? I guess that's my question. Yeah. Well, congratulations for assembling upon that. Uh, what are, it sounds like a really peaceful and, um, at least non-threatening mode of exploration. So that's seems really neat. 
um, that that directly parallels what I practice myself and what I try and advocate for. I've heard some people um, refer to it as uh, somatic experiencing, which is soma, the body, um, just experiencing different sensations in our body. And I think there's so much debate about what proper meditation is, and there's so many different ways of doing it. But my understanding is that the most basic form is what you just described, is being aware of sensations, bear attention, noticing that they are occurring, and then directing our focus to them. And in doing so, we may find that by also maintaining a consistent awareness of our breath, that those sensations really relax. Sometimes they intensify just as we draw our attention to them, but almost always those sensations, once it's like if you're in the spaceship and you're looking at all the different buttons, once I notice the thing is going, I might be tempted to be like, yeah, yeah, okay, got it. And just continue to ignore it outside of my peripherals. But I think there's this system built in where if you don't fully allow yourself to be with it, and to take a moment to appreciate what it's trying to tell you, it knows that and it's going to continue to persist. Whereas if you can direct your attention, okay, that's what it's saying. And sit with it until you fully understand it. I think that is an incredibly powerful tool. And when it comes to additional ways you can refine or tinker with that, um, there's there's many. Uh, there's a ton of different uh Structure, more structured or in, um, elaborate modes of meditation. And for myself, I would just suggest that um, increasingly, I, I just really enjoy deepening this practice. And uh, the more I pay attention, the more I notice that um, it's really hard and that there's ever deeper levels of awareness and conscious participation to uncover. So yeah, I would just continue to say that you're doing a great job and yeah, see if you can keep going at it. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Isha, you are up next. You want to unmute yourself? And yes, Emily, you're you. after her. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, and thank you, Blake, for very much for your talk. Um, I'm um, actually have some of the same questions that Andrew D has. I was thinking about the, um, well, first, just uh, when I was young, I did experimental, you know, more experimenting with mind altering substances, but now I'm what I would call psychedelic curious in part for um, working with trauma recovery and further personal and spiritual development. Um, so one of the models that I work with when, when um, especially if I'm talking about an exogenous substance, is Joseph Campbell's model of preparation, initiation, integration. So the preparation phase is what I'd be doing before I take the substance. That initiation would be during the taking the medicine, the safe container I'm in, et cetera, and then the integration is after. So I was curious from your perspective with the Buddhist technologies, how you, you would apply them to those different phases of the process. Uh, I'm imagining from your response to Andrew that that might be too big of a scope to answer during the Q&A. Um, mm -hmm. 
And, and then the other question I just had is I live in the United States. So um, I've just been wondering and watching to see what happens with the legality of access to substances and ways to be able to access them where someone, there's a, people and places to go access the use of them in a safe environment, you know, mm -hmm. a safe container that's being provided because I don't feel competent to be able to provide my own safe container you know, just as when I'm going through certain um, process, internal processes that are in the process of evolving, I need at least another human to help hold space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll try and deal with those two questions. Uh, the first, I love the idea of really being aware and alive to the fact that there is a pre and a during and a post. And I think that so many people have really teased a out that that is critical to um, do specific things during those different periods. Um, were you asking for specifically, so how Buddhism might apply to each of those? I would love that answer, yes. And if it's too big for now, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so just I, in the most simple terms, um, I can just share what I, uh, when I help people through journeys, uh, how I structure it. So the first is really one of I mean, this isn't super groundbreaking stuff, but it's just really one of education and really um, helping the person know so many of the things that are going to be critical about the journey. So that might be how long they might expect the experience. What are some of the common side effects? Um, what are some of the most common sort of experiences or takeaways people can have, including challenges or epiphanies or the whole gamut? Um, and I think at the beginning, it's probably the most important time because you have to do so much front loading to help prepare people so that they um, can really go into it, not trying to figure stuff out that's like periphery stuff, but they can really be alive with the experience and confident that the ground they stand on is stable. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I would really encourage people to do so much research and get educated on everything to expect as well as to really investigate what your intentions or motivations for doing this kind of um, journey are and to really sit with that and experience it. Um, and if it's not feeling like it's the right time to heed that warning and yeah, just be really clear on the why, because that in my experience, I know there's been some people in this meetup group who uh, gave presentations in the past who might disagree, but I think that, uh, being mindful of your intentions or your motivations is a really useful way of um, having a tuning fork to return to during what could be a exultant or tumultuous time. And part of going into the, the bulk of the experience, and perhaps this is what I'll finish with, um, I think just returning to the breath and then being aware that there is no such thing as a good sensation or a bad sensation. There aren't things that objectively we should try and get more of or things that we should run away from and simply consistently, persistently with compassion, curiosity, and uh, undeniable warmth, just be alive to what is happening and to trust that whatever it is has a message and to allow our focus to exist on it. And sometimes that sensation will be so intense that it's threatening, at which time it's okay. We don't have to stay with it. No, there's no metaphysical gun to our head. It's a 
at sometimes if you're, I think of like mindfulness and bear attention as like doing weights or something. And sometimes the weights shaking and you're going to drop it on yourself. If you're doing like a bench press, you don't have to finish that completion. You can get someone's help and take it off for a second. At which point you can return to your breath. Maybe your intention, maybe you have a talisman or a little touchstone that reminds you of loved ones or something that you care deeply about and feel safe and nourished by. Um, but I think as much as possible as you can feel safe and empowered to direct your awareness to what is true in that moment, that you, there will be tons of value and discovery and insights that are opened up. Um, the second thing just about how to get access to practitioners. Um, yeah, I mean, there's amazing things going on in Oregon and in California. I don't know where you're based out of, but they are definitely opening initiatives as well as in Colorado. And I could go on and on, but increasingly, I think, um, the legality is opening up, but I also know that there is a very healthy and robust, um, network of underground therapists and people have, there's, it's, you're really taking it into your own hands there. Um, so there's a level of risk, but I would encourage you to use resources. Like I believe maps.com has, a uh, reference of different practitioners who are mainly therapists or psychologists who will help you with, it's usually called trip integration. Uh, just a note here on the legality of it. Um, my understanding is that, uh, in most places you are, it's not illegal for you to be on a substance with a therapist. It's just illegal for the therapist to give you a substance. So if you were to say, do a substance outside of their office and then go in, um, and there may or may not be some, uh, like licensed professionals who will talk with you about that beforehand and have some experience of helping facilitate those kinds of experiences. And yeah, one place to check out is, um, the maps professionals, and then to cross-reference that with referrals and do your due diligence. Um, it's really important to ask people and get a sense of who they are. Cause there's unfortunately in an unregulated market, uh, it looks like uh, just from a quick Google search, there's a, I saw three meetups in, uh, in Arizona on meetup.com. <laughs> so uh, good luck. All right. I think we're going to round this one out with Emily. Um, so you might, your mic is unmuted. Uh, we'll transition into the group discussions. Thank you, Emily. Hi. You're right ahead. I'm sorry. My camera is not working. So I apologize for not jumping on, um, but tons of smiles over here. Thank you so much for everything you've shared today. It's been super insightful. Um, I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what um, your meditation practice is like. Is it, are you one of those really cool people who wake up at three o'clock in the morning and spend their witching hour getting connected with themselves? Is it a daily thing? I find that it's usually when I feel like I can't breathe and all of a sudden, oh, I haven't meditated today, kind of like my lifesaver. I just wanted to say too, I really appreciate how, um, how much you focus on the fact that there is no wrong way to meditate. Um, I try to bring that into yoga teachings. There's no wrong way to breathe. It's just kind of what your body needs at that moment. Yeah. Well, thanks for your appreciation. Um, my meditation process at this point, um, for a number of years, I had a daily meditation uh, practice. And what that looked like was usually um, somewhere around half an hour in the morning and then half an hour at night. 
Um, sometimes that was an hour, sometimes it was 40 minutes, sometimes it was 10 minutes. Um, but I, I usually aim to get as, as close as I could to an hour each day. Um, now, and for the last, I'd say about a year and a bit, um, I haven't been meditating in a structured regular or like at this time, uh, each day, what I find my practices really transition to, and I don't know if this is just an excuse, but is one of um, what I've referred to as waking, heard referred to as waking meditation, um, such that I try to infuse as much as I can be aware of it, um, all things that I do with a level of, honestly, meditation. Um, I've had some experiences of just really mundane tasks, whether that's brushing my teeth or um, making dinner, where I am trying to meditate in the process, which means um, focusing on the task that I'm doing while continuing to breathe and feel my breath um, and being deliberate and intentional with my focus and awareness. Um, I've also found myself in some pretty uh, obscure or yeah, exciting situations in which um, I've taken the opportunity to meditate as well. Um, I had the really good fortune of being a photographer at a large music festival. And um, there was a point where there was so much ruckus and a carnival uh, sort of atmosphere going on. And I remember um, finding a space on the side of the stage in front of, uh, yeah, this whole production crew and just taking the time to, to really drop in and connect with my being and my breath, regardless of what the externalities of the world were uh, foisting onto me. So I think we can, yeah, for myself, I can meditate um, as I'm walking or as I'm writing or as I'm doing tasks, as well as I will not hesitate in social or um, external situations to really carve out the time and drop in if I have the sense that it's going to be really beneficial or if I'm out of alignment. Thank you. That's beautiful. I appreciate meditating in the chaos of the world and not trying to silence everything too. It's very cool. All right. Uh, so that's all the questions we have. Christoph, is there anything you uh, wanted to say in closing before I uh, wrap things up here? Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. Thanks so much. I just want to just give a thanks to Blake for uh, coming on and giving this and just sharing all those insights and uh, really getting in there and answering those questions. Uh, we appreciate you coming here and doing that.